Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome back Jim Loria as my guest. You may have discovered Podcast Jim a couple of months ago, together with Adam Tank. This time, it's quite different because we welcome the VP Sales and Marketing of the Mazi Injector Company and the board member of the International Ozone Association, or simply put, Ozone Jim. Actually, Jim and his team at Mazi went on a quest some weeks ago. They wanted to find out how to optimize ozone diffusion to maximize water treatment efficiency. Hence, Jim will tell us more about the two usual shapes of ozone diffusers and how they differ from one another when it comes to investment, energy and operations and maintenance. He'll then also address bromine, bromates, process automation and weight of OPEX and CAPEX in the lifetime of an ozone plant. In our conversation, Jim also addresses how ozone generator efficiencies may be reaching an asymptote, how new sensor technologies open new avenues for optimization, how it may be challenging to break industry habits, and how that may be integral to the vital nature of the water sector. He'll also cover how modeling can open new horizons for ozone applications and wider risk-taking, and how water reuse may become the new largest one. Finally, Jim shares how important it is to regularly upgrade your knowledge by following on your existing customers, but also how nothing exists in a vacuum, how you shall beware of seeing everything as a nail when you have a hammer, advanced oxidation processes, modular ozone generation, and much more. I hope you like this conversation. If you believe that any of what Jim shares is of interest to one of your friends, do them a favor. Grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. Don't want to steal a phone? Well, you can also send a message or post a link on social media. Come on, do it for them and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Antoine. Uh, it's great to be here. Well, it's interesting because um, it's the second time I welcome you on that show, but it's the first time that you're here alone. So um, today, I'm not talking with Podcaster Jim. I'm talking with Ozone Jim. <laughs> but traditions have to stay. So let's start with something really important to me. Can you send me a postcard from where you are right now? So I'm in San Francisco. As we were talking, it's a little cooler. Most of the people are hearing about the heat wave we have here in California, but uh, typical of a summer day here in San Francisco, it's in the mid 50s and we have the marine layer coming in, very foggy, should break up sometime around noon, but a welcome respite from the 100-degree heat that you're hearing from some of the other places around the state. So I alluded to this ozone gym, and given your path, you've not always been ozone gym. You have been through various different parts of, of this industry and other industries, and I was wondering, how do you first get interested into ozone, and how did you dive into that topic? Yeah, I got my degree in chemical engineering back many years ago. And when I started in my career, I started as a process engineer in the sugar industry. And it was a great experience for a young chemical engineer because there's so many unit processes within the, the uh, sugar making process. And so I uh, became aware of filtration, clarification, activated carbon absorption, responsible for the boiler treatment, for the cooling tower treatment. And so as far as water was concerned, I became involved with UV technology and ozone. So touched on all those different uh, aspects of water treatment. But it wasn't until I joined Maisie back about six years ago that I really got focused on ozone because one of the most important technologies that Maisie manufactures and designs is getting oxygen species into the water, whether it's air, oxygen, pure oxygen, and ozone, it's difficult to get 
ozone into water. A lot of other gases are easy to dissolve, but you really need some extra effort to put ozone, as you well know, into water. So that's kind of been the genesis. Uh, I've been involved in the mining industry, so ozone used there for some processing technologies. So I touched on it a lot, but only in the last six years did I really become understanding of its importance and its use in various uh, treatment technologies. So you're already spoiling a bit what we will be discussing in, in a minute. And I think you, you had a perfect encapsulation when we were preparing for that discussion because you said it's all well to produce ozone and to generate ozone. But if you never apply it to anything, be it water or another application, you're just producing it for nothing. But right before we jump into that part, you said that uh, it's now six years that you're with Mazi. And Sometimes, you know, you, you start in a new field and you're just happy to be in that new field, even though you just said it's not that new to you. But you took that challenge really on a full different level. I mean, you said, okay, I'm in ozone now. What is out there? It's the International Ozone Association. Well, I need to get on that board. And you're on the board of the International Ozone Association. So how does that happen? Why did you want to hop on? And what is at all this International Ozone Association. Right, right. So, you know, I think it's really important for individuals in a given industry to give back and to really lend themselves to working with their trade organizations. And the trade organizations really have a lot of information that they can share with the members to push forward that technology. So as far as ozone is concerned, the International Ozone Association has a lot of people involved from the consulting engineering side of the business, utility operators, manufacturers, designers. And so I felt that, number one, I'd like to learn from these experts, right? So gave me the opportunity to get together with them and understand what's going on, look at some of the technical papers that are being presented, and then also to give back both in terms of what I could give back personally, but what Maisie could give back. The entire organization, Maisie, uh, Angelo Maisie, the founder and, and CEO of the company, is very, very involved in, in the Ozone Association, International Ozone Association. I am. Several of my other colleagues, uh, our director of uh, research and development is involved as well. So Giving back is, is a big part of what we can do and learning. And so we get together and, and I think it's very important as far as what's going on, both in terms of North America and in terms of other parts of the world. Let me sidetrack you a bit here. I have a riddle or a puzzle, take it as you wish, which dates back to all these years where I attended the International Ozone Association's congresses. I was always wondering, let's say you're Mazi. And let's imagine you have a competitor. I don't even know if there is a direct competition to Mazi, but probably if there is one, it has to attend the same Congress than you do. And let's imagine you now have a new product, which is the best one, which is really a breakthrough. Would you go to the International Ozone Association and present it in a paper and that way reveal all your secrets to your competition? Well, it's a, that's a really good question. So it's going to get out there. Antoine, if you've got competitors, and we do, we have direct competitors, we have there's alternative technologies that compete with Maisie's technology to put ozone in, into water. But uh, if you're trying to hide it, I mean, most of the people that are at the conference want to learn about the latest developments. So if there's one or two competitors out there and there's 15, 20, 25 people that could potentially use your technology, are you not going to tell it? And uh, if the competitors are, are worth anything, they're going to find about, out about your technology as it's being introduced. So if you're fearful of that, you've got to be one step ahead of the competition. And so bring it on. I, I, I relish the idea that there's other competitive technologies out there. There's no perfect solution. So there's going to be places where other technologies can maybe better apply than our technology, but we want to know about that. I think that's a perfect answer to a tricky question. <laughs> I already stumbled a couple of times on the International Ozone Association, so I'm going to call it IOA for the rest of this interview because that way it's going to be a bit more easier in, in, in my mouth. So sorry for the acronym for, for the one listening to that. Let me just redirect people that would be just 
wondering, what's this ozone all about? What is it? Um, we won't be covering that today because I released on the podcast Water 101 on ozone. So there you have the, the basics. So I'd consider here that the basics are covered. And with you today, Jim, it's going to be a, about a bit of advanced ozone. And actually, I'd like to start with some data that you, you took out of the IOA. And you published a very interesting paper, which is going to be a, a mine and a gold medal of information for me to nurture this conversation today. And your paper was actually looking at the 425 ozone installations there is in North America. And before looking the conclusions of all of that, I'd like to reflect on the number. What do you think of the fact that across North America, there is 425 ozone plants? Is it a lot? Is it not so much? What's your feeling? Yeah, so good question. It was a deep dive into data, and it wasn't only just the information from the IOA. It was a lot of our internal data, Maisie's data, that we extracted. And one of the things that I always say is that there's a lot of information that we have within our grasp. That's within our trade organizations. That's within our own databases. You've got your CRM system. You've got your design system that uh, the, the project folders for each project that you've done over the years, you've got your modeling, CFD modeling in our case, folders, and they usually stand in separate silos. And so what we decided to do was take those silos and break them down and combine all the information to find out for our own efforts, what's going on out there and what are the trends. So your question of you know, the amount of installations, we went back and uh, I think the first installations in North America, and I know you're a big history buff. I, I love what you did with ozone, with your ozone 101 in, in just a short period of time. It really developed the track of where ozone has been, how it started and where it's now. And so I'd say in the 1940s is when in North America, when they first started using ozone. And so I'm not sure that it's really been that well established. I mean, 425 is, is, is a good amount, but I think there's opportunities for it to be looked at for a broader range of applications. And now with more of the challenges we're having with uh, different pharmaceuticals in the water, other cyanotoxins from algal blooms, uh, I think there's opportunities for ozone to be used as a technology, not alone, but in conjunction with a lot of other processes. You said that you wanted to extract from the data some insights and some knowledge, but what exactly were you looking for? What, what was the, the root reason why you did that deep dive into data? Well, you brought it up in your uh, 101, Ozone 101, and uh, the fact that over the course of time, the fine bubble diffusers when ozone was first introduced, was the way to put ozone into water. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, they found out that they could produce much higher ozone concentration, 10%, 12%, 16%, even approaching 20% now. And they were using, in the past, they were getting 2 to 3% using air-fed generators. And now they found that if they used oxygen-fed generators, pure oxygen blocks, they could get much higher percentages. And when that started, they also found that they needed a better way to get the ozone into the water. And that's when side stream injection really started coming into play. And that's the trends we saw in the mid nineties as these higher ozone generators could produce more concentrated uh, ozone. The way to get it in the water was better using side stream injection. That's been the trend uh, since the the uh, mid-90s to the two, early 2000s and, and even up to now. I think we have to do a pit stop here to explain what's the fine bubble diffuser, how it works, and what's the side stream injection. But right before, I have to, to tell you a, a crazy anecdote because somehow I have to tell on every podcast that I'm French. So that's the moment <laughs> where I tell everyone I'm French. In France, for whatever reason, we still use ozone generators producing ozone from air. And the reason has always been that there were calculation done on the cost of electricity and thinking, you know, electricity is so cheap in France that probably it still makes sense to do that instead of the cost of oxygen. And that is, by the way, widely 
not true anymore. I'm not saying wrong because it's, it's an overstatement, but it's not true anymore. But habits are difficult to overcome. And so still, I, I think there's France, Turkey, and sometimes Russia, which are the only place in the world where you would still produce ozone from air. That sidetrack already closed. Let me come back to the question. So we have the fine bubble diffuser. So it's like a jacuzzi of ozone and the side stream injection, which is actually what you do. So just explain us how that works. Sure. So fine bubble diffusers, basically on the bottom of a, of a basin, you've got these either ceramic or, or membrane type of units that bubble up small bubbles. They create small bubbles of ozone. And as they rise in the tank, 20 feet, 30 feet, between 20 and 25 feet, as the ozone bubbles up, they have intimate contact with the water and they dissolve the ozone into the water. And it takes time, right? It's time and, and depth. With side stream ejection, you're basically taking a side stream, like you say, maybe 10% with a pump off the main flow, and then using a Venturi injector, you're pulling in with a Venturi, basically there's a restriction in the inlet and outlet. And because of this restriction, the velocity increases and it creates a suction. And it pulls in the gas in and mixes in with the side stream, making a concentrated ozone solution. But then you have to mix that concentrated ozone solution back into the main flow. So you use that with a series of nozzles, either in a pipeline flash reactor, which is in the pipe, and you use the shearing force of the nozzles to force that concentrated ozone solution in with the main flow. Or you can do that in a basin with same type of idea, the Venturi pulling in the concentrated maybe 10%. And that's typical, 10% side stream. That was another thing we did. There's a lot of misconceptions about the amount of the uh, side stream you need to actually accomplish this. And for the most part, we'd say 10% is about where you're looking at. And same thing in the basin, you're using these nozzles to shear. Now you're also getting mixing. So in the fine bubble diffuser, you're not getting that kind of mixing that you would get using the side stream injection system with the Venturi and then these, these nozzles. There are many elements to unpack in what you just said. So first, let me translate what you, what you said in terms of feet <laughs> to, to meters for the one that wouldn't be listening to that from the US. Uh, so with fine bubble diffuser, it's between six and eight meters that usually you have as a contact. And staying with meters and, and millimeters in that case, if I recall right, on a fine bubble diffuser, we say fine bubble, but a fine bubble means three millimeters, roughly. So what you explained is that it's about the specific surface. So the smaller the bubble, the higher the specific surface, which means a better contact. Right. And you shortly alluded to it, but I'd like to dive a bit deeper on that. You, you said that nowadays you would use 10% of a side stream. But if I, if I recall right, that wasn't always the case. And I think your data also shows that that is an emerging trend, that you have smaller side streams. And before you, you were mixing with like huge venturis. What triggered that change? Why can we now nowadays go to smaller side streams? Well, I think what happened was uh, with the Venturi, you were trying to do everything in one unit, right? So now what became of the, the concept was you can't do it all in one, one shot, right? So the idea is mixing the ozone to a concentrated side stream and then be able to mix. And so what Maisie did was you've got the primary mixing in the injector, in the Venturi injector. And then you get secondary mixing in the nozzles, either in the basin or in the pipeline flash reactor. And then we've even gone to the next step where you do in tertiary mixing by adding some elements, some components to the pipeline flash reactor with some flow control vanes that provide more turbulence and also with a grid, a mixing grid, that will create some type of ability to force any undissolved gas at the crown of a, of a pipe back into the, the water. So with, with this, you're getting a lot more mixing than you had in the past. And that's the evolution of side stream injection. You mentioned that sometimes side stream is still combined with a reactor. 
when would you combine it with a reactor and when would you do a, an in-pipe mixing? Sure, sure. So one of the best ways to do it is if there's already basins, right? And if they had a basin that had been used as fine bubble diffusers or some other treatment technology, you already have the concrete and structural installation there. You might as well use it. But if you don't, and it's a greenfield, the pipeline flash reactor takes up so much less space. In fact, one of our customers, they put it on the ceiling in one of their plants, so it took up no footprint. And this way, you've got less footprint, less structural concrete and steel footprint in terms of space, but footprint also in terms of the amount of civil works that are required to put this in place. You mentioned flash reactor, but still the reaction is not instant, or is it? It's pretty instant. It's pretty, what, one, of the, one of the big important things about it is with a fine bubble diffuser, obviously it's about the size of the bubbles, the amount of water it's coming in contact with in time. And during that time, you've got certain reactions. Of course, the dissolution of the ozone into the water. But we found that with a pipeline flash reactor with side stream injection, it's almost instantaneous. Seconds as compared to minutes with fine bubble diffusers. And the important thing to note about that is it's been shown with a Water Research Foundation look at this type of uh, systems, comparing the two systems, that bromate formation is less because you've got less of this reaction time with the side stream injection process as opposed to fine bulb diffuser. And as you had explained in your Ozone 101, I mean, a big issue is around uh, disinfection byproducts. And uh, bromate is considered a disinfection byproduct. So bromate is what happens when you oxidize bromide. So I think the English correct one is bromine. Bromide is German. But basically, it's you. you have that precursor in water, which is absolutely harmless. You oxidize it, and then you get bromate, which is carcinogenic. And it's, it's cool that you come on that topic of bromate, because I'm pretty sure you must have a scientific answer to my tricky question. Because, I mean, it's not a secret. I've been in that business as well. I've been working with Ozone and uh, we had our own side stream injectors, uh, which in the US used to be Mazi, but in Europe used to be different. And the main counter argument we were getting all the time was, you know, you're mixing in the side stream a lot of Ozone with not so much water. So you're putting a high dose of Ozone on not so much water and that must be creating bromate. And I mean, must like divination, nobody ever measured that. But still, there was this belief that that would be creating more bromate. Sure, sure, sure. So that was what the Water Research Foundation investigated. And it happened around the plant up in Canada that was using both side stream injection and had another plant close by using the same water source that was using fine bubble diffusers. And they found that the bromate formation was much, much less using side stream injection plant. So, I mean, theory is one thing. But, uh, you know, in practice, it was found that in actuality, the, the bromate was formed a lot less using side stream rather than fine bulb diffusers. I remember having this conversation with uh, Wimo Denard from the AM team. He actually just did a, a model out of that. He, I think he even called it Amazon, which is a nice pun. But it's interesting to see that finally concepts which have been theoretical or just guessing now turn into fact with the research site, which is just comparing one-to-one -one, or having just a, a CFD modeling telling you this happens and this doesn't happen. So that is really interesting. You mentioned the flash reactors, but is it something you also do at Mazi or is it something which is a third party? No, no, that's our design. We build the entire system from the injectors to the pipeline flash reactors to the basin nozzle manifolds. And as I said, in order to get that tertiary mixing, we've also added some new elements to the pipeline flash reactor called a PFR plus. So you get that turbulent flow, which is important because well, what we found was a lot of water reuse plants, they change flows quite a bit. So sometimes they're running at, let's say, 10 MGD and other times they're running at 50 MGD. And so in order to make sure you're getting the proper amount of ozone in, 
we decided that you needed some flow conditioning veins to be able into the pipeline flash reactor to create turbulence regardless of where the uh, uh, flow rate was. So turn down, what we call turn down in the U.S., you're taking that into account. And also, as I said, we've added this mixing grid, uh, low amount of uh, pressure drop, but also at the end of the pipeline flash reactor to make sure that you're forcing any undissolved ozone that would be at the crown of the pipeline back into the main flow of water. Do you have like an idea of the ratio? If I see all those elements as individual workers, we have the first worker, which is the venture injector. The second worker is the nozzle. The third worker is maybe the, the, the mixing element you have in the, in the flash reactor. Do you know which of them is doing most of the job? Yeah. If there's one? Well, I think it's pretty typical, right? For any process that upstream is always going to do the most work than the downstream, right? And, you know, being a, uh, you know, starting my career as a process engineer, I always look at that that way. And in order for the downstream processes to do the work they need to do, you need to be as efficient as you can be upstream. So the Venturi is doing most of the work, putting the gas in, creating that concentration. The nozzles are doing the shearing and mixing of putting a lot of the the, uh, of mixing that concentrated ozone in. And then the downstream, either the flow conditioning veins upstream of the pipeline flash reactor or the mixing grid is doing some of the work. So I'd say, you know, it's, it's like any other process. Most of the work is primary, then the next is secondary, and then final. And I like to use those terms because the water treatment people, they understand that whole idea of primary, secondary, tertiary treatment, right? And it's exactly that. Most of the work is done, you know, in the primary stage and then secondary and then tertiary. Very true. Let's go to the bone of that full story. Why do we speak about this efficiency? It's because usually when you, let's say you test your water and you say, I need that much ozone dose, it's not that much ozone that you produce in your generator and then pour in the air if you wish to do it. It's how much ozone goes into the water. And what you're saying here is that with your system or a similar system, let's say a side stream injection, you, are, you have a better certainty that despite turndown ratio, despite existing configuration, you have an optimal transfer. And actually, if I'm right, that's what's called mass transfer efficiency. What is typically what you, what you reach with your side stream injection systems? What is, let's say, the, the market average if you're using the, the ozone jacuzzis? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I wouldn't say there's there's a lot of difference in what you can achieve. Maybe a little more efficiency using side stream, 95% transfer efficiency versus maybe 90, 92%. But I think there's a lot of things that need to be looked at. So first of all, it's about money. It's about cost, right? You've got to look at that. And so it's about the biggest part of the, the, the transfer efficiency is about electricity, because you're producing ozone using electricity in the generator. And so if you can be more efficient about producing ozone in the generator, that's energy cost. And then you're talking about maintenance, you're talking about safety, a lot of those things around the operating costs of the system. And then of course, capital costs, we talked about that. And so capital costs is about footprint, civil works, size of the plant, where you can locate the, the system. So it's about CapEx and OpEx, installation, maintenance. And there's one other issue that, you know, people, we're just starting to find this out. And it's important because it, it all relates back to how the plan is going to operate overall, is the homogeneous nature of being able to put the ozone in the water. Because as we're going forward, we're talking about real-time monitoring. And so the sensors that are going to be in there, they're going to see a certain milligram per liter of ozone downstream to be able to control the plant and how much ozone you're producing. Now, with side stream injection, you're getting a lot lower coefficient of variation. So in other words, you see more of the water has, is a, you, you get more ozone across a, a certain level of water consistently than with the fine bubble diffusers. And that's important because if that sensor 
is not seeing what's really there. It's seeing less than's actually in there. It's going to go back, feed back to the generator to produce more ozone when in actuality it doesn't need it because it's got enough ozone. Conversely, if it sees too much at that given sensor, it's going to go and tell the generator, hey, we've got enough. Don't produce any more. And so we're about to uh, publish a paper, again, comparing two places that are using side stream side by side with side stream injection. And there's a lot less hysteresis. So there's a lot less hunting because you're producing more of a homogeneous ozonated water stream with side stream injection than you are with fine bubble diffusers. And that, you know, the ozone generator doesn't have to work as hard. So you're talking about maintenance issues. If it's hunting and it's looking for where is it producing, your electrical costs are going to be higher. And also you're going to use more locks. So across the board, again, it's that whole idea of balancing upstream processes with downstream processes, feedback. It's heaven for a process engineer to kind of try and figure out how to balance that stuff and make it work right. Actually, you've touched something which is an open question for me in that world of ozone. If you look at every single IOA Congress, there is a new technology on the ozone generation something which is even better, which is even more efficient. And I do believe that those generators are probably very close to the asymptote. At some point, they can become slightly better, but not that much better. And I was always wondering if the elephant in that room is in the control of all that system. Because what you mentioned here is that you're measuring dissolved ozone at the output, and you're saying it should be about point something, and point something means it's sufficiently treated yet not too much. But maybe the stuff you want to get out of that water or to treat or to oxidize out of that water reacts with the gaseous phase of ozone, which means ozone never has to be dissolved. And you're still pouring a lot of ozone just to dissolve it into something that doesn't need to have ozone dissolved in it. And maybe the other way around, maybe you're targeting something which needs higher levels. And I was always wondering, wouldn't it be more efficient to look at the result instead of looking at the, the sort of thermometer if you get my, 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 my analogy. Right. So, you know, that's exactly right. So you have to look at it as a system, right? You can't look at it as just, okay, the ozone generator does this, the injection system, the, the transfer system does this, the locks does this. I mean, you have to look at it as a, as a total balanced system. And again, it's upstream and downstream processes and what's doing what. And I think that that, again, speaks in favor, uh, not doing your advertising here, but that speaks in favor of side stream injection, because if you're working with fine bubble diffusers, your turn down capacity is limited by the fact that if you start having low volumes on your diffusers, the bubbles just become bigger. And if they become bigger, the full fine bubble element just disappears. So probably this side stream is bringing much more versatility, but you have to leverage it with the right sensors and the right control. That's exactly right. And that's been a, um, you know, for, for a long time, we've heard, well, you need more controls coming off of the generator going to a side stream injection system than you do with a fine bubble diffuser system. And like, it's a bad thing. Uh, and we're saying, no, that's a good thing because now you have more control and, and that's what you want out of it. And so it, you're, you're exactly right. And yeah, it's, a, it's an important part of the, the equation. I was mentioning this habit element in France of using ozone made from air, but actually habit is something which is quite everywhere in this world of ozone. I remember when we were building the first micropollutant treatment plants in Switzerland with ozone treatment, we did a special design for the first one, thinking, you know, we're going to review that design and whatever is good is going to stay and whatever is wrong is going to be left and replaced. And it turned out that those studies were conduced and we really saw, okay, we don't need probably one hour contact time, maybe much shorter would be far sufficient and maybe we need less ozone and we need, and really all those results of the pilot plant were, were taken and, and, and written in an official report. And nevertheless, the five, six next plants, which were built in Switzerland, are copy-paste from the first one without taking one single improvement out of those studies. And there's a reason for that. It's that, okay, you can improve it, but if you're the engineering 
office, you need to, to put your stamp on it and to say that works. And now you know that that thing works. So why would you take the risk to make it maybe better, but maybe impossible to operate? And I'm wondering, from your experience, would you say it's really a case-by-case? Case? Every plant, you look at what's the best solution and you design that best solution, or is it really off the shelf? Like that team has always done bubble diffuser, we'll just take it off the shelf and put it in the next plant. Yeah, well, you've hit an important topic. It's not just in the ozone portion of our water treatment field. It's almost all of the uh, different uh, uh, aspects. It's about innovation, right, Antoine? And, you know, to copy and paste, let's face it, I mean, in, in a lot of other industries, if you make a mistake with an iPhone, you just throw it in the trash, right? And you start again. No one can die from a bad iPhone, right? And with water, we're more cautious, right? But it also kind of stifles innovation. And so one of the things that we did early on, I'd say maybe seven, eight years ago, is we really embraced computational fluid dynamic modeling. And so we can do some modeling to find out, will this work and will it cause issues? Can we do what we say we're going to do in a plant? And the use of CFD modeling also has helped us where we didn't exactly get what we thought we were going to get, but we could do pretty rapid troubleshooting at a plant where we installed the system and we were confident that we could fix the problem without a lot of trial and error of going back and forth trying to find, will this work? Will that work? No, we, we figured it out. Here's what we need to do. We need to make this change. We need to increase the horsepower on this pump, whatever it might take. So, you know, you hit on an important uh, point. And I think with CFD modeling, with automated uh, design software that can pull from other designs that were done in the past, you know what I'm talking about here, our good friend Adam Tank. And, you know, you had to pour in Adam, of course. I had to. He's, he's, <laughs> as I call him, my podcast partner. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's a good thing. And so, you know, with software um, and digital uh, technologies, we're getting more innovation and taking, I wouldn't say bigger risks, but we're not as afraid to say, let's try a new design because we can prove it out in a model before we actually install it and it may go wrong, right? But I know we can do CFD. And uh, when I was working in Ozone, which is now almost, I started almost 10 years ago, we already could do CFD. But because we could, we still didn't do it. It was still, a lot was done out of habit. So I'm just wondering, what would you say is the ratio of plants that you see, which are really done like, hey, come on, that plant is similar to that other one. Let's not do a CFD. Let's just copy paste. Yeah. Oh, well, I see it changing. I mean, I think more and more of our projects are requesting CFD modeling to prove out what, we're trying to design. So I say, I see the trend being that way. We feel strongly that if we're going to give a performance guarantee on the ozone residual, the percent transfer efficiency, if we haven't done a plant like that before, then we insist that, or it's tricky, or there's different aspects that, you know, have some issues, then we'll insist that CFD modeling be part of the project. So, it's a reassuring point that things are evolving and um, I take your word and honestly, uh, that's really something positive. Now there's a part where I'm still wondering how advanced the feeling is on the market. It's something already alluded to, the CapEx, OPEX side of things. If I recall right, but you're going to correct me straight away because now I'm a bit rusty on that topic. If I recall right, a ozone plant is paying itself back I mean, you're, you're, you're re-giving the same amount of money in operating costs compared to CapEx roughly every two to five years. Yeah, I, I like to use the, you know, over a 20-year life cycle, if you look at that, right? So, so that's how I, I like to look at it. I'd say the CapEx and installation costs is one-third of the total life cycle cost, and OpEx is two-thirds. And I'd say that's pretty standard for most water treatment systems. True. I think in the ozone world, it's maybe even more potent than in other ones, how you can go a bit cheaper in the design and harm 
quite a lot your OPEX on the long run, or maybe it's because I know a bit better the ozone than the other processes. In Europe, that started, I would say, not even a decade ago, that in a tender, you would not only call for a price, but also for a guarantee of your operating costs. Is that common practice? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it has to be. What's interesting is if you look at the, the people that are buying the equipment, at least in North America, the contractors are the ones that are buying the equipment and installing it. The engineering firms are the ones that are specifying it. The utility is the one that has to operate it, and they're going to be stuck with the costs, both as far as the capital and installation and over that 20-year life cycle period. So there's a lot of moving parts, and you've got to convince everybody that you need to look at the, that total life cycle cost as part of it. And I, I think it's changed quite a bit. It, in my time with Maisie, it's been pretty standard that people are looking at those overall costs, the electricity, the chemicals that are being used, the maintenance that is being required for a particular process technology, the labor, safety, right? Safety is a big thing with risk. So I think people are looking at it more holistically than they have in the past. And that's a good thing. But still, it's a complex matter because you have so many levers on which you can play. You know, I always remember it was one of my first day when I started at Ozonia. I had a series of trainings and we had like three dinosaurs there in the company. So Hans-Peter Fellman, Walter Uttinger and uh, Martin Rotlin. And those three were like having, I mean, the day they leave the company, I hope that they put all their brains somehow in the fridge that they still have access to, to, to that wealth of data. And they were showing me a table which was saying, basically, you know, we have like this two, three, four ozone generators in the range. Um, but if you look at it, it's over 1 million possible combinations because you can play with, be playing with the feed gas, you can be playing with uh, the diffusion, you can be playing with so much elements. And you made a hidden advertising to Transcend and to Adam just, just minutes ago. And I think what they're doing is, is amazing in terms of, of disruption of the way we design our systems, but is it really something achievable to say we can go to that level of complexity and find out what's the best lever to play with, or do you still need some magic? I mean, it's a matter of why we went to the deep dive into our data, right? So, I mean, we've got, there's 425, you mentioned 425, now not all those amazing plants, right? But we've got you know, a good amount of them. And so taking that information and putting in some kind of engine Because, I mean, you look at a wide range of applications, but they're not all that different. There's a certain amount of, there's ones that are being used for iron and manganese precipitation. There's ones for disinfection. There's other ones for odor control, color. So you take those and, and, and you put them in a model and you say, okay, here's a good starting point. And so you've got more of a chance. And then you marry that to computational fluid dynamic modeling that you've done for pilot testing for other things. I mean, that's where we're going to be. And it's not going to be too long, you know, far down the road. Out of these 425 plants that you surveyed, that you checked the data, what's the percentage of them which were drinking water plants? I think the majority, because that's where it started, right? And so the majority is drinking water plants. And again, I, I mentioned it, disinfection, color removal, iron and manganese. So most of it. More though now is being used for water reuse. The trend is in that direction. So I'd say most of those plants that we, we, we surveyed were more drinking water plants. But now we're seeing because uh, water reuse is such a big issue now and ozone has many good applications for water reuse and needs higher concentrations of ozone, of course, because you're talking about organics, breaking down the organics. So much more concentration uh, of, of ozone that needs to be put in the water to do the job. The reason why I'm pushing you in that corner is because I want to put my devil's advocate hat last time. You know, I've been in your shoes somehow, having ozone as my weapon and thinking, hey, that can solve everything. <laughs> but it turns out maybe it can, but not always to the most competitive price or approach or efficiency or whatever. And, you know, 
we have seen many things happening and thinking that is going to be a breakthrough. And then it wasn't like when, when Degu, I think it was in the nineties, built a 300 kilogram plant of ozone to treat wastewater. We thought, Hey, it's going to be the treatment for wastewater. And then it turned out it's a really good treatment for niche applications like reuse, as you mentioned, or micropollutants, or I mean, this kind of emerging things. I think 20 years ago, Lots of people were investing into sludge reduction, saying, hey, we have all that sludge in the in the municipal wastewater treatment plant. We could be reducing them with ozone. And yes, it works. But the reduction you're winning there isn't quite close to something that makes it economical. And I think that's going to be my last stupid example there. There's this mammoth plant in Montreal, which is a massive disinfection of wastewater because of, of the context of that water flowing into into the Saint Laurent River and, and you have to, to protect the, the, the river from the organic content which are present in, in the wastewater treatment. But but still, I don't think that's going to be the trend for the future, that all the wastewater treatment plants are going to be disinfected with ozone. So do you think ozone is still an emerging application or the fact that it's around for over a century lets us think that it is a solid thing, which we know is working, but probably not the hottest prospect among the, the processes which are around today. Well, so, you know, we started the, the discussion around me being a process engineer. So a process engineer realizes that nothing exists in a vacuum and each process lends itself to something, right? You build a house, you don't have a screw, just a screwdriver or just a hammer or just a saw. You need all the tools, to build that house. You know, ozone's a good tool, but it's not the only tool you can use for good water treatment applications. And so it's got its place. And also it has to exist in terms of what other processes it, can it be used with. That's, I see the growing uh, opportunities. So you've got AOP, right? You use it in conjunction, ozone in conjunction with UV, with the hydrogen peroxide, with other oxidants, other treatment technologies, you, they're starting to use it with biologically active filtration, where ozone does a really good job of breaking down those long chain organic compounds and allowing those bacteria that's on the substrate, whether it's on carbon or other aggregates, it can digest these smaller portions, particles more easily. So I, I think that as we look at ozone, we can't look at it as, as just ozone does this, but how can it work as part of that treatment train, you know, before a, a filtration uh, process, after a filtration process, before another oxidation process? And how does it combine with all those to do the job we're trying to do at the end of the day? Who ensures that we still leave some room for the crazy ideas? Because you mentioned ozone is a good team player. It could be combined with so many possible treatments. And just to give you an example of what I'm thinking of here, I recall, I would say six, seven years ago, we did a study by injecting ozone as a pretreatment in wastewater treatment to remove micropollutants. And the consensus was ozone is going to target everything but micropollutants because it's still so heavily polluted at that stage. No chance that it targets the right thing. And it turned out that that worked pretty well to remove micropollutants. But I mean, it goes against your brain. It goes uh, against your intuition. So it's hard to convince everyone to test out that thing that made absolutely stupid. So is there still a place for, for crazy ideas? Yeah, yeah. And then by you guys doing that, I, I think it opened up some ideas. So maybe ozone could be more effective if you removed a certain level of other organics that were in that wastewater that ozone would react with, where there's other pollutants that you could let through that prior uh, treatment system, and then ozone could target it without removing those, you know, the ones where ozone didn't react with. That's the kind of innovation that we need to think about. And so pilot testing, uh, modeling, all these things are, are really good things to be able to discover where ozone might have its best applications. It's amazing because Ozone Jim knows his stuff because I'm really <laughs> taking you off guard with, with a question and you nail it because if I remember right, the reason why that works is because 
ozone and raw wastewater is a kind of advanced oxidation process. You're also creating hydroxy radicals. I have to say, excellent answer. Jim, it's been a pleasure to, to have this deep dive with you. I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Sure. It's time for the rapid fire questions. And I'm going to start with two very rapid questions that I just added on the go because I just wanted to push you in a corner. And I guess if people are listening to that after 15 minutes, they deserve to have you pushed in a corner. So my first rapid fire question is, are you team vertical or team horizontal when it comes to ozone generators? <laughs> I said it was going to be tricky. No, it's not tricky for me. Uh, we don't care how you generate the ozone. We, we just know that Maisie Injector has the best technology to put it into the water. <laughs> Perfect comeback. A, a really perfect comeback. So I guess you're going to have the same comeback for my second question, which is, are you team ceramic or team glass? Oh, same, same question. I mean, everybody has their preferences on how it's produced. But again, if it can produce the ozone gas, then the idea is you need to get it into the water. That's the, that's the main thing. And we feel we've got the right technology to transfer it into the water. By the way, now I'm sidetracking. That's not really rapid for a question. I'm just wondering, you know, the reason why for the muggles that wouldn't understand why I'm pushing you that way. I mean, there's Vedeco and there's Xylem and Suez, which are the, the two big brands and Dinora to, to a certain extent in Japan. You have um, Mitsubishi. But most of them have a horizontal concept, except Xylem that has this vertical concept, which is claimed to be space saving. I mean, I was on the other end, so I can give you the counter argument, but I think it's really at some point a saving in terms of footprints. And the glass versus ceramic is the dielectric, which you have inside the tubes. So the, the glass, it's just a support that you're using to have the corona discharge. But the reason why I'm making this kind of precision right now is that what I've seen emerging towards the end of my ozone times is this trend for modularity and generators that were maybe a bit less energetically efficient, but were producing higher amounts of ozone, uh, higher concentrations of ozone at least, and that you could just put everywhere in the plant because they were so small, so compact. Is it something which you see as a trend in the ozone world, or is it really a niche in the niche? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we talked about that before. Side stream injection, where you mentioned it, more flexibility, where you can turn a pump on or turn a pump off. So it allows you to, to run a system more um, efficiently then find bubble diffusers. And so the same idea, modularity with the ozone generators, all depends on, on the application, of course. Okay, I stopped pushing you in the corner. Let's go back to the rapid-fire question. <laughs> Actually, the second set of rapid-fire questions, so the one for the returning guests. So my first question is going to be, what is your favorite part of a project? I love the process design. I tell my sales team, look, I don't want salesmen, salespeople, sales women. I want process detectives because in order to sell your technology, you really need to know what's upstream of your technology and what's downstream because that's how you're going to understand how to sell the benefits of what you're bringing. It's safeguarding that downstream process and how is it interacting with the upstream process. So, you know, I, I like the process design part of the project and understanding the benefits that can accrue to the customer uh, based on the technology you're offering. Very interesting take and very valid point, I guess. Is there something that you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Um, so I, I think we talked about it. I, I think with the design, there's going to be less of the idea that we have to do it by hand, right? And less of the risk of not putting the right design out there. And uh, it's all around design. And, and I, I think that's going to be the real case of what not only me, but what my company is going to be doing and other, other companies in the water treatment field of, you know, using Excel spreadsheets to come up with the design of a particular model of a water treatment plant. So that's the, the third ad for Adam today. <laughs> well, I'm not advocating. I mean, there's probably other software design that's going to be out there. And, uh, you know, Adam's not going to be selling in a vacuum. 
and I don't have any interest in in transcend water. He's just my friend, and and but but I recognize the opportunities there. And you know, I am a big fan of CFD modeling. We have our own CFD modeling engineers on staff at Maisie, and we're a small company, but we we've put a lot of emphasis on that type of modeling for our our customers. I'm really joking about the transcend element, and for the people who are not familiar with Transcend yet, you can go back to the feed of that podcast. I think that was season one, episode 17. I had Ari Rivets on that microphone to talk about Transcend. And going back to your previous answer about being process detectives, I mean, if you are so busy with designing every single screw of your plant, you cannot afford to be a process detective just because there's so much hours in the day. And I tell you that I know that firsthand before every big tender we were submitting, I was just not sleeping, spending the night in the office to finish the offer. And when you are really giving the technical specs of, let's say, a, a compressor, you're not thinking about how you could optimize a plan. So I'm fully with you. I really hope that is something that's going to move in the next 10 years. And you're not visiting those plants that use your technology to find out how well they're working, right? You're not going and, and talking to customers that could retrofit your technology into into their upgraded plants. That's the idea. It's not so much picking and choosing which design software is the right one. It's that this is where it's going and it's going to make all our jobs easier in that regard. But then we have to take that time that we would devote to doing our calculations and using that time for more productive things that we talk about is understanding you know, how the benefits of our technology can work in a given process. What is the trend in our industry that you would like to see ending and disappearing forever? Well, we talked about it, innovation. I mean, we have to be more innovative. You know, cut and paste isn't going to work anymore. We as engineers in the industry have to really embrace that and, uh, and do everything we can to understand how we can speed up speed up innovation. That, that's that's a thing. I mean, we innovate, right? But can we do it faster and 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 with less trial and error? That's that's the big thing. And last question for me here. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? <laughs> the one thing I've learned the hard way is I started my career as process engineer, but I moved into sales pretty quickly. So, you know, I, I feel like I've taken those steps to understand going the hard way of working and not being able to do the things that I'd like to do. You said, you know, the times you've sat up at night doing the design work when I much rather would have been in somebody's plant, you know, tracing, tracing the lines and understanding, oh, this is where the water comes in from. This is where the water goes out of. What are all the nuances? talking to the operator, what are the issues he has? I would say being able to get out there and actually, as, as some of my Israeli friends say, taste the air, right? You're out there and actually seeing. So um, rather than sitting behind a desk, actually getting out into the field. And, and so the, the less time I've spent in, in the field has been not as beneficial as the time sitting behind a desk, right? So... Jim, it's been a pleasure, as always, discussing with you. We are releasing this, that episode in August 2021. So if you're listening to that very far in the future, you cannot benefit of what I'm saying right now. But I think you're going to the Iowa conference uh, towards the end of August. Is that right? It is. It is uh, the August 30th into September. A lot of good uh, presentations. I'm going to be giving a presentation on ozone optimization Kind of a lot of what we talked about is going to be part of that presentation. And uh, I'm also giving a uh, presentation, a very entertaining one, informative one, on the use of ozone in the cannabis industry. Now you got me hooked. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew I would. I knew I would. Is that a physical conference or is it going to be also digital? No, it's just a virtual conference. Virtual conference, right end of August, August 30th through into, into the beginning of September. And so for the one that wouldn't be attending that conference, I guess I can still redirect them to your LinkedIn and probably to the Water We're Talking About podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or you can reach me directly at jlauria at maisie.net. 
happy to engage anyway. LinkedIn is always a good place to engage with me. And uh, you can also go on the IOA website and learn more about uh, the conference as well. Register there. Which just gives me an additional question, which has nothing to do with this closing, which would have been in the deep dive, but I'm now very curious. I have to add that one. You know, I mentioned that when I was working for, for Zonia, which is now part of, part of Suez, I think all of our North American plants were with Mazi, and none of the European ones or Asian ones were with Mazi. And I'm just wondering, are you a North American company or are you a worldwide company? So we're a global company, and uh, obviously we're, we're concentrated in the U.S., but it's more about educating the rest of the world about the advantages of sidestream injection. And so, you know, that's my goal. I've got a, a project team that's working on how can we advance this technology in Europe. And uh, as you said before, I've lived a, a lot of previous lives before Maisie, And uh, I lived in Hong Kong for a number of years, and I did a lot of work in Japan. So one of the things that I want to do um, in 2022 is go and visit Japan and visit Mitsubishi and Fuji to explain to them our concepts and some of these things that we've learned in North America and maybe be able to apply them with my project team in Europe and then with uh, my own efforts in Japan. So that's part of our goals to, to really expand the the concepts of, uh, of this technology into other parts of the world. Well, that makes for a perfect conclusion because that gives me the opportunity to give you an open invitation whenever you have a nice reference to talk about in, in Japan or in the middle of good old Europe. I'd be glad to see how the muggles of Sidetrim Injection react to what you bring them because they might still love their ozone jacuzzi. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.